We began looking at the first letter of John last week. We're going to continue in that this week. So it's First John. If you turn in your Bibles to First John, uh, chapter 1, we'll start from verse 5, where John writes that this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thank God for his word and for the assurance that that word should bring to each one who knows Jesus as Savior and Lord. Let's come. And let's pray together. Father, we want to give thanks to you for that salvation that's ours through Jesus. We thank you that it rests upon him, not upon us. That it rests upon his work done on our behalf. And on the love that that then brings to life in our hearts. We want to follow Jesus. We want to live for him. Sometimes in our weakness we fail, but Father, we thank you that everything is covered through the blood of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the, the main problems that I see in the church of today is, is in relation to the Christian's position regarding sin and the demands of, of holiness that God makes on the Christian's life. But you see, I know that as soon as I, I begin to talk on these subjects, that there will be some Christians, usually the, the best, most sincere, loving Christians, who because maybe of their background, their personality, perhaps both with that then leading to feelings of inadequacy, inf inferiority, insecurity, that there will be some Christians who will almost automatically condemn themselves as a result of the kind of things I'm going to go on to share with you. That's me, they'll say. That's me. I'm not living that kind of holy life that truly pleases God. Sin is too much a part of my life for me to be in right relationship with God. Why, the way that I live, I even wonder if I am a Christian, if I can be a Christian. But at the same time, there will also be Christians who seem almost bulletproof as far as subjects like sin and holiness are concerned. Christians who've reduced the Christian life to a simple, I've been saved through faith in Jesus and that's all that really matters to me, kind of approach. Christians 
who are not prepared to think any more deeply about the Christian life, about the, the implications of a Christian life than that. And how it shows at times, how it shows in their life. As in so many areas, the way that they live is totally inconsistent with any kind of claim to a meaningful faith relationship with a holy God. You see, these are people who've taken Augustine's famous statement that we should love God and do what we like entirely at the superficial, at the surface level. For they think that what is meant by loving God is simply having the occasional warm glow, warm feeling about God. When you're maybe singing a a well-loved song that's got memories for you. And that being so, then they think, so long as that's in your life, well then, you can go on to live very much as you like. Just live as you like, with your own thoughts and desires, your conscience serving very much as an almost foolproof guide for you into the ways of the Lord. But you see, love for God in the Bible is actually far deeper in depth and substance than that. Jesus himself, he tells us in John 14, 15, what love for him is actually really all about. Because he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. You see, that is the ultimate proof of the truth of our love for Jesus. Not what we claim we feel toward him. Not what we say we know of him. No, but the fact that in our lives, day by day, we obey him. For of course, while salvation is, as the Bible says, Ephesians 2.8, famous verse, by grace, through faith, nothing to do with us or any works of ours, But while that is the basis of our salvation, yet at the same time, the ultimate proof of the reality of our salvation lies not in our feelings, but in the fact that we live lives of obedience to a holy God. That we go on in our lives to do the works consistent with a holy God. For as Jesus again says, This time in Mark 7 verse 20, as he says, By their fruit you will recognize them. By the way they live their lives. Not everyone, he says, who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you see, loving God is about a lot more than occasionally feeling good about him. Rather, it's about determining in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, to do the will of God. It's about being prepared to subject our at times, though renewed, yet still fallen consciences, fallen desires, being willing to subject them to the will and the word of God. Now you see, once we've done this, Once we've got this foundation right, then we really can then love God and do what we want. For what we will like, what we will want to do, will be in line as far as we're able to appreciate it 
with the character of God, with the will of God, as that is revealed in his word. But that, though, is the problem, I think, that we have today with regard to sin and the demand of holiness in a Christian's life. We've got the problem of some who are oversensitive and of others who seem to be almost totally insensitive. Now, what I want to tell you now is that John faced precisely the same problem in his day. For as we saw last time, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but as we saw, John here was writing into a situation, in fact was actually provoked into writing here because of this situation, into a situation where a group of false, heretical, pseudo-Christians, we now call the Gnostics, let's explain that name again in a wee minute, where they were wreaking havoc within the church. And very basically, just, just to recap, what they were teaching was that Jesus hadn't really actually been God in the flesh. But rather he was simply a man. A man who God's spirit had occupied for a time in the, the same way that someone might think perhaps of a, of a ghost occupying a house. So there wasn't then anything divine about Jesus. Not all Jesus was was an ordinary man who'd had an extraordinary, special experience of God. And what they then went on to say is that we have the gnosis, and this is where their name comes from, it's Greek for knowledge, the secret. We've got the secret, the gnosis, that if you come to us, if you take part in our rituals and ceremonies, that will enable you to climb up the ladder to a similar experience of God but you see this allied to an underlying philosophical understanding that matter the flesh the human body is essentially evil and the the spirit essentially good this led them to a, a kind of spiritual elitism a kind of we are the people type of approach And it expressed itself practically in a very lax, liberal attitude towards things like morality, like holiness, like lifestyle standards. You know, what they said was that things like standards and and behaviour, they don't really bother us anymore. They're not really relevant to us anymore. We don't have to live on that level because our experience of God, what we know of God, is such that it's lifted us way beyond that kind of basic, primitive concern. And this teaching had an effect on the church. Of course it did. For it it seems that there were some maybe true yet fleshly, spiritually immature Christians in this church John was writing to who were attracted to this because it seemed to offer a kind of easy, carefree life of faith. They thought it was great. Hey, we can have Jesus and yet live as we want. But others were affected in a very different way. For as we read in, in 1 John, it would seem that the main effect that this teaching had on true believers was actually to make them feel unsure of of their status and their standing before God. 
Seems to be the thought along these lines. You know, were these new teachers, were they really right in what they said about Jesus? Were they right in terms of the experience that they offered and about the ongoing unimportance of holiness? Or alternatively, was the old teaching, the teaching they'd received from the apostles, the teaching of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, about the importance of holy living as a reflection of his character and as a love offering to him. Was that right? After all. So you see, again, as as far as sin and holiness were concerned, John was faced with the same two basic groups as we are. He was faced with the insensitive, and the oversensitive. And that's why, because in the space of this one book, he's writing to two entirely different groups of people. That's why when texts are taken at random and taken out of context, that's why John can at times seem to be saying what appear to be totally contradictory things. And that's also why certain extremists, when they concentrate only on the text they want to in First John, actually seem to be able to find backing for what they teach. Now, examples of this kind of seemingly contradictory extremism are 1 John 1 verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then 1 John 3 verse 9, he says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's sin remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, what what I want to say to you, I hope demonstrate to you, is that actually set into the context, set into the background of this book that we've just outlined, and also set into the wider teaching of the Bible, then this is just not so. It's not so. John is neither contradictory nor is he extreme. But let me try and demonstrate this to you as we move on to look at what John really here has to say about sin and the Christian. And let's begin first by looking at holiness, its roots in God. The roots of holiness in God. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now light is a symbol that's that's used in the Bible in in various ways in, in relation to God. But here, in its context, it's very clear that it's been used to stress the absolute holiness of God. And the fact that there is no sin, no evil that has any part in God. What's interesting, I think, is that historically and outside of Christian faith, God and the relation of good and evil to God have been understood in two main ways outside of Christianity. Some religious groups, basically, they argue that there is one ultimate power in this world. And from this one power, both good and evil emerge. That's what we find in Hinduism, in Buddhism. And also, I would say that's 
the idea that underlines the, that underlies the famous Star Wars Star Wars films, you know, the the Force and the dark side. The other common idea that was around in the ancient world, and it's also still around today, is that there are actually two ultimate forces in the world. One good, the other evil, perhaps equal in power, and locked in conflict. You see, that was the idea in the ancient Greek and Persian world. And actually, that's what underlies a lot of the kind of religious New Age thinking that permeates our society today. Now, the heresy that, that John was facing here, this Gnostic heresy, it really fell into the first category. These people believed in God as a kind of force, not a personal God, but a force with a dark side as well as a good side. They believed in a a kind of morally neutral God, a God who could go either way, and who as a result of that, as we've said, consequently, conveniently, doesn't make any kind of moral lifestyle demands of his followers. But you see, what John says which was revolutionary at the time, and that underlines again the uniqueness of Christian faith. What John said is that those who think there is only one supreme power, one absolute power in this world, are right. You're right. But you are wrong to think that this power is a mixture of good and evil. You're wrong in that evil exists apart from God and evil is ultimately subject to God. There is no equality, John says, for God is light and in him there is no darkness. And you see, if this is the kind of God we have, an all-powerful God who will have no part with sin, And a God who is a father who demands that his children walk in his way of holiness. If that's the case, then how do we live out this kind of holiness? Yes, and what then, if this is the case, about the presence of sin? That even in Christ is still a reality in our lives. I mean, can we actually really have fellowship with a holy God? Well, that's still true. Of our lives. Well, let's think about that a little bit more as we move on now to holiness, some common wrong reactions, both then and now. And the first wrong reaction is to say, the darkness makes no difference to me. That's reflected in verse 6. We claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness. Now, what we're talking about here is that claim spiritual experience with no accompanying moral, no lifestyle component. It's either an expression of a thought-out approach to the spiritual life, or that can be something that that we seem, some people just seem to, to drift into. Now you see, in John's time, as we've seen, for these Gnostics, this was the, the result of a thought-out but misguided approach to life. But you see, we find the, the same kind of thing in, in many present day religions. For instance, in Hinduism, we find this in the practice 
of yoga. Now, I know that many people today think of and practice yoga simply as a physical exercise. Understand that. But you see, in the classic kind of sense, yoga, by virtue of meditation, is intended to be a mystical, spiritual technique that leads to a greater experience of God. But lifestyle, though, morality, has got absolutely nothing to do with it. So I believe that I'm right in saying that a Hindu could come after committing a serious crime, say murder, they could come after committing murder, practice their yoga, and if they practice their yoga correctly, by no other means than that, could claim an intimate experience of God. But you see, this kind of approach to God isn't limited to those who've thought it through. No, there are are Christians around, I believe, who, without thinking this through, adopt a similar kind of approach to the Christian life, who seem to be able to separate their lifestyle, the way that they live, their holiness or lack of it, from their claimed experience of God, who seem to get confused between their feelings, their emotions and their desires and a genuine and true, deep, spiritual move of God in their hearts. I remember, a few things about this, but I remember again Raymond Brown, who's my principal at Spurgeon, sharing one time a, a devotional time we had with great passion, a story from one of his ministries. And what had happened is that, that two people who are both prominent, well-known members, active members of the church, these two people left their respective partners to live together. As part of trying to sort this out and resolve this and his pastoral input, he met with this couple and they said to him, you know, we've never felt closer to God than we do now. His reply to them was, I don't care how you feel, you are not close to God. And he was right. He was right. For without repentance, they could not be close to God. In one way or another, they were deluded, either self-deluded or deluded by Satan. Most probably a combination of the two. Because as John says, verse 6 again, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not live by the truth. Another wrong reaction to holiness is to say that the darkness has no part in me. There in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin. Now this again is something that these Gnostics claim. This clear distinction that they seemed able to draw between the flesh that is evil, and the spirit that is good. This enabled them to say that though in the flesh and with my body I may do evil things, yet the essential part of me that God really cares about, the spiritual part of me, still remains pure and untainted, untouched by sin. And this we find, I think, paralleled in our time, perhaps most clearly, In humanism, 
humanism that's dominant in our world and the worldly philosophy that bases its hope for the future not in God but in the inherent goodness of man that we're good and we're going to sort everything out and sees all that's wrong with man and wrong with our world not as the fault of man himself not as our fault not as a personal fault no but it's the fault of the conditions it's the fault of the environment it's the fault of lack of education etc etc that man finds himself in it's these external factors that prevent man from displaying what is his true goodness and from reaching his true and full potential and I remember this debate I don't know if everybody understood it clearly but this debate between the, the Christian view of man and the optimistic humanist view, I remember it being played out in the aftermath of riots a number of years ago now. Uh, I think it was in the northeast of England. And people on the ground, clergymen particularly, they saw this and spoke of this as an explosion of human sin and evil. The government not committed in any way to a Christian worldview, but not wanting to get the blame for it, they expressed a similar kind of view in a way, but used different language. This was the work of yobs and thugs. But George Carey, who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury, he blamed this on poverty and social conditions. I want to say I was very disappointed with George Carey. Because though I abhor the social conditions in many parts of Britain, in our own country, in our own town, then and now, yet ultimately, there were many people who were suffering and living through the same social conditions who did not riot. And you see, that would seem to me to suggest that the ultimate cause, the root cause of these riots lay in each individual human heart. That's not to say we shouldn't do things about social conditions, but it's to say it's the heart that really matters. Because let's face it, can we really blame the gas chambers of Belson, the killing fields of Cambodia, of Bosnia, of Syria and Yemen, right here and now, today, can we really blame them on social conditions and environment? Faced with the worst of man's inhumanity, can we really claim that man is actually inherently good and just give him a chance and it'll all come out? I prefer John's assessment that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But the final reaction wrong reaction to human sin and God's demand of holiness is to claim that the darkness can be fully overcome by me. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned. Now what we're talking about here is the person who says, yes, sin is serious, is very serious. And yes, man by nature is a sinner. But listen, as for me, I have progressed. I have reached the point where I have triumphed now over my fallen sinful nature and all its desires. 
Now this was a claim that it would seem was also made by these Gnostics, a claim that they could reach a point in their knowledge and in their spiritual experience where sin no longer had any hold on them. Though given their immoral lifestyle, quite what they meant by sin, I think it's difficult to determine. But you know, again, we, we find parallels to this a lot nearer to home. In the teaching, for instance, emerging from John Wesley and the early Methodist movement, the teaching of the doctrine of sinless perfection. Perfectionism, which has in its various ways reared its head in the church in different ways over the years. The teaching that there is a holiness arising out of a certain experience of God, a certain experience of the Holy Spirit, that once appropriated, lifts me up and guarantees me a sinless life. Now, you know, there's a story that, about Spurgeon that he was once confronted by a man who actually made this claim face to face before Spurgeon said they hadn't been, he hadn't sinned for over six months. Now, what Spurgeon then did is disputed. Whether he poured a jug of water over this man's head or whether he stamped on his foot. I have to say, personally, I would have preferred the water because Spurgeon was a big boy. But the result, what happened, is undisputed. And that is that this man's period of sinlessness instantly came to an abrupt end. Spurgeon, though, did this because he saw this claim as being ridiculous and being unbiblical. And it's not surprising he did because so too does John here, verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we are, we make him out a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Okay, so as far as human sin and God's demand for holiness is concerned, as far as that's concerned, we've now looked at three common wrong reactions. Let's finish by briefly looking at holiness, its beginnings, its continuing, and its end. So, okay, once we've got right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's where it all begins, but once we've done that, what then is the beginning? What then is the essence of holiness? Well, it's not knowledge. Though knowledge of God, knowledge of God's word certainly pleases God and, and does draw us closer to him as long as our heart is right. But knowledge isn't the essence of holiness. And neither is experience, is claimed spiritual experience. Because while spiritual experiences might spur us on to holiness and might draw us closer to God, yet experiences are not in themselves the essence of holiness. What then is the essence of holiness? Well, mentioned it before, and it's actually laid out for us here as clear as we could want in verse 7. It tells us, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see, it's walking in the light. That's the essence of holiness. It's living a life of obedience to God. That is the essence 
of holiness. But, but again, you might be wondering, what though does that actually mean? If perfection is out for us, as you said as Christians, then what does living an obedient, holy life actually mean? What does it mean? Well, let me try to explain this. In so doing, try and tie together John's teaching that some find contradictory. I believe that living an obedient, holy life is about living a life where we turn away decisively from our former spiritual rebellion. We turn away to instead seek to live under God's rule, to live under God's authority. Now, this won't mean that we will live a perfect life. For 1 John 2, 1, where it talks of if anybody does sin, that suggests that because of the remnants of our fallen human nature, our sinful nature, we will continue while we're in this body to sin. However, and this I believe is crucial, the tense of that, that statement in the original language, that suggests that this should be in the sense of the odd, the isolated act of sin. As opposed to living a life where sin is again the dominant characteristic of our life. And you see, I believe that's what John is talking about here in 1 John 3 verse 9 when he says that no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, John's not saying that someone who's born again will never sin. No, what he is saying is that someone who is born again will never live a life of continuous characteristic sin. And that if someone does, then that brings into question whether God has ever really done a work of the Spirit in them. Whether they truly are born again. It raises that question. But we are not equipped to answer it. Only God is. But Roy Clements, he brings together beautifully, I think, what true obedience, true holiness, true conversion really is all about. This is what he says. Conversion is about being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And when we make that transfer, we start to live life differently. We know conversion has happened by the moral changes it produces. A Christian's life is then committed to God's standard. Even though sometimes he fails to keep them, he tries to keep them, he wants to keep them, and he is disappointed when he does not. His whole life's progress is a constant attempt in the power of God to live more in the light of these standards. Now you see, if this is not true of us, then we will never be holy. And it does have to be at least doubted whether we're even converted. That though is how holiness begins. It begins with obedience. How though does holiness continue? How do we continue in holiness? Yes, if sin is an abomination in God's sight, how then can we remain holy before him, even with one act, never mind the occasional act of sin? 
This passage here makes it very clear, I believe, that we continue in holiness by confession. We continue in holiness by continually bringing our sins out into the open and having them cleansed and dealt with and purified at the cross of Christ, by the blood of Christ. Verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now I want to say, if only we would learn as Christians to do that. If only we would keep short accounts with God, then how we would grow in holiness and in the depth of our relationship with the Lord and one another. Too often, though, I fear this is something that we're just not willing to do. Because rather than actually face up to and deal with our own sin, we'd rather try and pass the blame on elsewhere. We'd rather blame anything or anybody else rather than face up to the fact of my sin, my responsibility. That's the way it's been since the Garden of Eden. Well, I once read, uh, this is what was said, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. But you see, until that changes, until that changes, until we deal with, face up to our sin and deal with it God's way, then our holiness will be hindered and our fellowship with God and with one another will never, ever be what it should be, what God intends it to be. Finally, though, what will the end be? That is, what will the result be if we get it right? If our holiness, beginning in obedience, continues in confession, what will the end be? I believe that the end is righteousness. That in this way, we stand righteous, purified, and blessed in Christ before God. So verse 7. If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Then chapter 2, 1 and 2. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but for the whole world. God wants us to stand before him, clothed in that righteousness of Jesus. You see, God's desire is to make you someone who is holy and then therefore beautiful in his sight. That's God's desire. God's desire for each one who knows him. May that be our desire. I pray today. Let's come before God in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for the, the desires, the ambitions that you have for each one of us.
You don't want little things for us. You want us to know Jesus and you want us to grow to be like Jesus. And you've provided everything that we need to enable us if we just are ready to walk in obedience to you. You provided us the guidance of your word. You provided us forgiveness through confession in Christ. And you provided us with that perfect righteousness of Christ that we can claim and stand clothed before you in. Lord, you want each of us to have a wonderful Christian life, a wonderful knowledge and experience of you. Help us by obedience and by faith to walk in your ways. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.